Before we get started, a quick program note. This week we are bringing you an encore of one of the most popular episodes we've run this year. So yeah, it's one of the rare weeks we're doing a rerun. We're talking about supercharging the brain and some new approaches to understanding brain health and what educators can learn from that. The episode first ran back in January, but it's still just as relevant as ever. Hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm a reporter and an editor here at Ed Surge. Today, we're talking about brains and how to take better care of them. Let's face it, our brains are crucial to education, and most of us really don't know much about them. In fact, scientists, they're still learning about these crucial organs and how they work as well. And as we've mentioned in past episodes of the EdSearch podcast, we're kind of in a golden age of discovery when it comes to the brain. It turns out there are whole new disciplines emerging with new ways of thinking about the human mind. Today, we are talking about one of those new approaches to understanding the brain from the discipline of physiology. That's the branch of biology that looks at how organisms function as a system. And I talked with a biologist who focuses on what he calls the physiology of aging and who has a background in evolutionary biology. He's James Goodwin, a professor at Lowborough University in the UK and a special advisor to the Global Council on Brain Health in Washington, D.C. So I'm really interested in that, that life course approach, um, how the brain develops in the embryo and how it develops through life and how that's related to brain health. That has only been extant as an area of investigation since 2013. His latest book lays out this new way to think about brain health. It's called Supercharging Your Brain, How to Maintain a Healthy Brain Throughout Your Life. This book is full of surprising advice, and it has implications for schools and colleges and anyone interested in learning. So I was excited to talk to James Goodwin, who, by the way, is an unusual character for higher ed. As he notes in his book, he never intended to ever write a book or, or even be a professor. He spent his early career in the military, in the British Army. And he only went back into the academy after that to get a master's and a PhD. These days, he has academic appointments at Lowborough University and Exeter University's medical school. And he serves as director of science and research impact at the Brain Health Network in London. Basically, he spends a lot of his time these days trying to translate new research into practical advice that can help people in their daily lives. So get your brain ready. Here is my conversation with James Goodwin. I want to start by talking about um, some tools that, you know, over the years have promised to help us hack our brains um, or, you know, improve our brain capacity or whatever, since it's such a thing that people long for, right? There's one example in your book I wanted to start with, which um, is uh, Baby Einstein, um, that kind of seemed like it's a bit of a cautionary tale, maybe. Could you remind us, I'm sure people have kind of heard of it or maybe remember that was a craze, but maybe remind us what that was and kind of what happened in, in, in its claims and what, what came of it. Yeah, Baby Einstein was a very special idea on a not-so-special evening by an American housewife who couldn't find anything in the marketplace to help to educate her child at home. 
And she set up this idea that if we introduce them to classical music or we introduce them to literature or we introduce them to uh, uh, engaging activities, we in some way will be able to develop uh, their brain. And of course, this was intuitively a very attractive idea. Wow, who would not want that for their, for their child? Right, like play, and it was just like play a, a, a tape or a CD or something or a video or something, right? And it was help. That Amazingly, there were not those products available for little kids in those days. And um, uh, she made her own videos and her own games and her own activities. So you had baby Einstein, you had baby Shakespeare, you had baby Van Gogh, you had, you had all this baby stuff. Unfortunately, there wasn't a shred of evidence to prove that... Uh, this venture was actually going to make any difference. In fact, the first piece of research that came out after a couple of years uh, showed that uh, those children who didn't engage in Baby Einstein after a year had got six to eight words more in their vocabulary than those who did, which was a bit of a shocker. And in true American form, um, the uh, uh, Baby Einstein companies it then was went after the researchers, took them to court to say that your research is invalid, unreliable, flawed, inaccurate, and, uh, and so on. But eventually, the game was up, and even though they'd sold all this to Disney, uh, Disney uh, got rid of it in 2019. And then, to my amazement, when I was in the, in the US over Christmas, my son's in New Hampshire, uh, I saw an advertisement for Baby Einstein products. I thought the game was all over, but apparently not. I just want to underline that finding. The people who didn't use the product did better mentally than people who did use Baby Einstein. Because there wasn't a shred of evidence about the design of it, the scientific basis, its content, any of it that was going to have any external validity at all. What's the message that we can all draw from that? The first message to me is, as you said earlier, everybody is seeking the Holy Grail. We want to know how, how to look after this stupendously amazing structure in our bodies called the brain. And even as a scientist and knowing a bit about it, I still, my mind still boggles about the complexity of the brain. And therefore, the second conclusion I draw, there isn't a, 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 a silver bullet. There isn't a, a, magic, uh, a magic formula which can do something for our brains. And the more I looked into this, the more I researched it, the more I found that there are principles involved and there's evidence that if we have uh, a lifestyle of choice that's beneficial from activities that will benefit the brain, then we'll do well. For example, uh, there was a paper published in Nature Journal by a group at Edinburgh University in Scotland, Professor Ian Deary, and uh, he found that only 25% of the change in our thinking skills across our life is down to DNA. So it's just 25%? Of the change in our thinking skills across our life. What's the other 75%? It's our environment and our lifestyle choices. That is a real knockout to me. And the second scientific finding that really scotched what neuroscientists have believed, 2019, University of Madrid, they found that new brain cells are produced in every decade of our life right through until our 90s. That was a real knockout because until then, 
the theory was by about the age of 25, the gas tank is full. We travel on that throughout our lives. And by the time we're 90, we're running on empty. Well, absolutely not so. And that made even more sense to me because if there are specific activities which can help to generate those brain cells and maintain them, that's how we can keep our thinking skills maxed up across our lives. And in fact, some of them get better. Great news for the listeners. But it is a practice. It is a a daily um, minding of the minding of the mind. So I was surprised by how much it's a mix of physical and mental, not just mental, but physical work, you say. Why is that? Or what, what is that interplay broadly? The first thing to say is it's never any one single thing. It's the single things you do every day. That's what does it over decades. So when you hear advice like if you eat dark chocolate, that's going to be beneficial to your brain. You can't go and buy a Hershey bar, eat a few pieces and think, um, you know, my brain, I've sorted my brain out. So, you know, it doesn't work like that. It's many things that you do multiply over decades. Now, to answer your question, why are things mental and physical? That's because the physiology of the body is physiology as a whole. So whatever happens in the brain is going to determine what happens in the body. And many things which happen in the body determine what's going on in the brain. Great example of that is gut health. Who would have thought that the gurgling, fermenting, gassing processes which take place in our large intestine, in our colon, and we all know what's in there, right, actually has a fundamental effect on our thoughts, on our feelings and our behaviour? Well, what a knockout is that? And the vagus nerve, which travels directly to the... To the um, to the alimentary canal, the the digestive system, 90% of its traffic is from the gut to the brain and only 10% from the brain to the gut. Another example would be one of the most powerful hormones, one of the big four in the brain is serotonin, the happy hormone. Well, the brain only produces 10% of it. Where's the other 90% come from? The bugs in your bowel. All these... Gurgling, fermenting bacteria produce 90% of our serotonin. That travels in the general circulation, floods the brain and makes us feel good or in the absence of it, puts us on a downer. Look after your gut. If you look after your gut, you'll be looking after your brain because they are connected. That's so interesting. Honestly, that was probably the most surprising thing in the book for me was the importance of um, this interplay between you know, the gut and also um, oral hygiene, brushing my teeth. Inflammation in the body is a proxy for aging. If you've got high inflammation in the body, then you've got rapid aging. If you've got low inflammation in the body, you've got slower aging. And if you can put your boot on the throat of inflammation, you can squeeze the heck out of aging. Where's the biggest source of inflammation or one of them? in the body. It's the mouth. Why? Because we're breathing in air that contains particles and bacteria and viruses. We're throwing drink in there. We're throwing food in there. We're putting objects in our mouth, cigarettes or smoking or uh, or chewing gum or whatever. Everything from outside the, the body enters the body through the mouth. And you've got 
I think it's 700 species of bacteria in the mouth, and they ferment away and produce all these inflammatory molecules which then flood the body. It's not a, not a coincidence that 70% of our immune system is in the mouth and di the digestive system. And the reason is simple. All the junk that comes in enters through there and has to be uh, dealt with. So if you look after your teeth, if you chew gum, that's amazing experiments done by researchers in the US and in Britain. Those who chew gum have 20% um, improvement in their cognitive performance than those who don't, and 20% less inflammation in their mouths than those who don't. I'm going to pause this to jump in. It's worth noting that teachers everywhere tend to um, discipline kids for chewing gum as something that's messy or distracting or even disrespectful. But apparently, the latest brain science says that chewing gum can help supercharge your brain. And it turns out there's more about typical classroom practices that might actually be counterproductive to brain health. So sitting is bad, though, as far as um, things not to do, it sounds like. I call it war on the chair. Uh, it's prolonged. What sitting. do you call it? Say that war again. on the chair. You're, yeah. you're fighting a war against chairs. Okay. You have to, you ha you're, as a person, as an individual, right, as a clever dude, you have to make decisions about how long you sit down for. And this was an American researcher called James Levine at the world-renowned Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And he published a paper to show that uh, sitting down generated huge amounts of inflammation in the body. One reason being that uh, uh, the circulation of the blood is very, very low. And he found that even if you do 30 minutes of exercise a day and then you sit down for more than 10 hours, and that's easy to do, sitting down for 10 hours is easy to do, right? You completely obliterate the benefits of that exercise. You've got to exercise for about an hour, 20 minutes to counteract 10 hours of sitting down every day. So the rule seems to be exercise and physical activity are two sides of the same coin. You have to do your 150 minutes a week of moderate to intense exercise and have an active lifestyle outside of that in order to accrue benefits to the brain. And we know physiologically and even biochemically how that coin works in the machine to produce those changes in the brain. Now, a lot of what we talk about here at EdSurge is education and, you know, pedagogical practices and classroom design. And if you think about it, most classrooms have seats and people are sitting down quite a bit, whether it's K-12 or higher ed. Is that... Jeff, it, it is changing. At my university, uh, certainly in the um, uh, sports science and exercise medicine uh, faculty, they've, they've, they've all gone over to standing desks. Uh, and their advice to students is, when you're studying, don't sit down for more than 40, 50 minutes at a go. 10 minutes, 15 minutes in every hour, get up and walk about. Now, if you're in a class, that, obviously that's difficult, but you, you can walk about between classes. When you're studying at a desk, you can get up. Uh, and certainly when I worked in London in one of these high-rise blocks... I used to get up every 40 minutes, walk up the stairs and go to the men's room 
on the top floor, 16 flights, and then back down again. Or I'd go to the water cooler and walk back. Or I'd go downstairs and talk to the guy on the door. Get to know what's happening in the building as well. So it was, that was a really interesting one. So we have, there are subtle ways in which we can make this easier. We don't have to punish ourselves to do it. And that is by basically getting up, you are, you know, keeping that flywheel going of, of activity, physical activity and mental. Yes, and driving down, driving down inflammation. Inflammation is the assassin of good brain health. You just want to avoid it. Even when we eat food, levels of inflammation go up in the body as you're eating. So one of the things I do is I, I sensibly choose my diet, but I only eat at certain times. So that would be breakfast in the morning at the same time, lunch at the same time, supper at the same time, and I never eat between meals. Never, ever, ever do I snack. I'm not saying that's a golden rule for everybody. People are different. But for me, that's, that's ha ha my, my informed way of uh, how to reduce inflammation. I mean, another, another thing about inflammation is if you don't get a good night's sleep, your levels of inflammation are going to be very high. You can measure them. You can measure C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, fibrinogen, cholesterol. You can measure all this stuff in the blood. Those who are act leading an active lifestyle with a good diet and sleep well will have much lower concentrations of those chemicals than those who do not. And if you start to get sick, if you've got chronic long-term illnesses, then that makes it worse. So the, the moral there is try and stay generally healthy because that will reduce your risk of chronic long-term illness. If you've got a chronic long-term illness, get it treated. And you can get many of them well treated. I mean, medical care in the United States, although it's horrendously expensive, is really good. You, you can deal with these things. And um, there are increasingly better interventions that are, that are going on. So it's a, I'm an optimist, Jeff. I, I do appreciate your, your optimism. Um, even if baby Einstein doesn't do it, there are tool, there are ways to uh, actually do things every day that can improve um, our brains. I, I, I definitely have been thinking a lot about this even before I read your book um, because just a, a personal note, my, my own father is actually um, struggling with dementia. And it's one of those things that you know, seeing it close up is, is quite jarring and, and, and emotional, but it's also very much a wake up call to, you know, wanting to make sure everybody can avoid that as if possible. So I guess I wonder, um, you know, are there habits, right? People say like, do their crossword or do, you know, to avoid kind of some, some dementia type diseases, which are obviously help affect a lot of people, what are, you know, other than the things we've talked about, are there, are there activities and brain kind of activities like of crossword that could help? Yes, there are. But just to uh, address the issue of uh, the risk of getting dementia, it's now estimated that we can reduce by 40% the number of cases of dementia by a um, preventative lifestyle. And there was a paper published two years ago in the, in the Lancet, uh, which identified 12 factors which definitely would reduce the risk of dementia. For example, one of the big ones in that study was he dealing with hearing loss. Now, I spent 25 years in the military right next to big things going bang, and I've got um, hearing loss in my, in my right ear. 
uh, and I really should have um, a hearing aid in there. But if you can take care of hearing loss, you'll definitely reduce your risk of dementia. Now, as to keeping the mind active, that's really, really important. And we have to understand what things work and what things don't work. Now, ordinary crosswords and puzzles are a big issue. There was a study published in 2019 by the University of Exeter in England, 19,000 people that found that those people who did crosswords and puzzles were much better in terms of their attention, uh, their working memory and their reasoning. Now, before we all start to get excited about this, that was a correlational study, so it didn't show cause and effect. So one explanation uh, was that all the brightest people who were good at these things were the ones who did them, and all the people who weren't so bright and hadn't got what we call cognitive reserve didn't do them, and that explained uh, the difference. What I would say about crosswords and puzzles... Uh, is that it improves the level of arousal in the brain, it's, it's highly rewarding, and it, and it improves the sense of well-being. And both those are beneficial to brain health. What, on the downside, what they have found is that there's no far transfer. So, in other words, if you're good at crosswords or Sudoku or, or numbers quizzes and things like that, I do. I do the spelling bee on the New York Times every day. Uh, yeah. And, that, and, that, and that's challenging. Um, but they don't necessarily translate to adding up the bill as you go around Whole Foods or uh, dealing with your investments or looking at your uh, bank account. What appears to be happening in crosswords and puzzles is that uh, you are rehearsing the same circuits in the brain over and over and over. But we also know that you can train the brain um, to retain higher numbers of these new cells that we talked about that are produced every year of our life. And to do that, the activity um, has got to be uh, highly intense. Uh, so you've got to do it very many times. You've got to do it over a sustained period of time. It's got to require a high level of concentration and it's got to be rewarding. So you've got to achieve success. Now, if those all apply to that crossword or puzzle, then that makes it a better crossword or puzzle, the one to which it doesn't apply. And I recently uh, advised the Daily Telegraph, which is the best-selling uh, broadsheet newspaper in Britain, about their games page. They, they reckon they compete against the New York Times uh, quizzes. They say they're the best in the world and we want to beat them. And so they, they asked me for advice and they've really changed all their puzzles and so on. And I, and I talked to their designers who make up the puzzles in order to make these games challenging. If they're not challenging and you're not learning something new or you're not becoming increasingly successful, they're not going to have the effect that they think you are. Having said that, there are other things which psychologists called cognitively stimulating activities. They will benefit your brain. And these challenge the brain, involve new learning, and they are things like a second language, learning a musical instrument, dancing, learning how to... Dance is what's called a complex intervention. It's social, it's emotional, it's physical. It involves decision-making, it involves memory, it involves execution. Dancing is absolutely superb for the brain so all those people out there who want an activity that is definitely going to improve their brain health you should learn to dance with a non-english speaking partner if you can do that so you can learn spanish 
<laughs> learn Spanish at the same time that you're dancing. You know, learn the tango. Have a Spanish teacher do that for you. That really will have a huge influence on, on your brain health. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, I was, it was amazing because, um, and it, it sounded like dance really was the, the only thing that really combined this physical and mental um, workout at the same time that, that, you're, that the research finds, it sounds like. But it's never only one thing, Jeff, remember. It's lots of these things throughout your life. And you've got to develop a brain-friendly lifestyle. That's what you have to do. What do you see as the role of education systems in promoting these activities that you've talked about? Two things. It's critical and it's central. And let me tell you why I say that. Most people think of brain health as the ability to think well, use their, uh, their reasoning, their working memory, their attention, uh, all those higher level cognitive skills. Well, that's one of three elements. The other two are social cognition, which is our capacity to interact with others. That is a vital part of brain health. Social capacity evolved in the brain over 1.5 million years. It was a survival skill. We would never have got here without it. There was a fabulous experiment run between researchers in the US and researchers in Germany, Berlin, I believe. And they looked at a group of chimpanzee infants and a group of human infants less than two years of age. What they found was that the chimps and the humans on the physical side were about neck and neck. They could explore the environment in similarly uh, potentially effective ways. But when it came to their social relationships, the little human infants really kicked the chimps into the dust. The ability to, uh, for leaders to evolve, for people to work together in groups, for the leader to delegate those groups, to work together in complex relationships, to overcome problems, to build together, to solve problems together, miles ahead. The third one is uh, emotional regulation. Our brain will be unhealthy if we can't balance our negative and positive emotions. Positive like joy, love, elation. Negative ones like anger, fear, angst, stress, disgust, uh, all of those, depression, all of those things. If we can't balance those, it will damage our brain health. One of the key elements in balancing our emotions, this emotional regulation, is how happy we are with our lives, our feeling of well-being. Now, come on, Jeff, educators from childhood right through to adulthood, executive skills, social interaction and emotional regulation. So they're playing an absolute critical part. What worries me is the present generation of children who've been given a really dire experience by the effects of, uh, of COVID. And we know that that's affected their mental health. And if it's affected their mental health and their well-being, it'll affect the ability to um, regulate their emotions. And emotions are hugely important. The heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. Those are the words of uh, Blair Pascal, a French philosopher. Spock is depicted in Star Trek to be towering over these hapless humans 
who have their beings confused by all their emotions. Well, if Spock was half as clever as, as the film producers showed he was, he would have developed emotions himself because emotions drive our thinking, they drive our, our well-being, they drive our behaviour. And together, that emotional power and our brain power make us the most successful being on the planet. So you educators out there, right, you are at the centre of all this and you've got an immensely key role to play. I think we'll leave it at that. I really learned so much from your book and from our talk today. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Thanks, Jeff. It's been, uh, been a pleasure. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week we bring you surprising new audio about the future of learning. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you do your listening. And if you like the show, take a minute to give it a rating or a review. Also, you can subscribe to our weekly podcast newsletter where you'll get reminders about every new episode and links to bonus information about every topic that we dive into. Just go to edsurge.com and click on the word newsletter at the top right. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at jryoung or on email at jeff at edsurge.com. Music this episode by Rowan Jane. The track is called The Mind Scatters. Thanks for listening. 